again, geeks, sweaters, and geek sweaters. All of you geeks who are looking to sweat, and all of you who sweat because it's geeky, welcome back to another edition of Geek Sweat. We watch films to save you the hassle. So, as always, we are joined by our regular presenters, the amazing Akosh Bolf. Hi, guys. Nicely done. And the terrific Trevor Jones. Oh, I've got a compliment this time. Thanks. I forgot to say terrible. Okay. <laughs> we'll do it in the edit. <laughs> the terrific Trevor Jones. And as always, we are controlled by the magnificent MKH Inc. You're very kind. I try. I do try. So today we have a fantastic guest, the cinematographer, Anthony Brown. Hi. Welcome to the Welcome to the show. <laughs> so, yeah, can we open the window to Anthony's fans again? Yeah. Okay, can we, can we close the window? Just, yeah. Uh, so, um, well, thank you for turning up um, this wonderful evening uh, to share a tight claustrophobic space with uh, four other young men. Uh, innuendo bingo yeah innuendo this go is it, this yeah is this is this is the way we do our interrogations fair enough, fair enough. Um, no it's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, we'll we'll get all of the uh, the dodgy straps laps and chaps out in a minute but um, I, I've been very interested to kind of get you on board onto this show because um, Geeks where it's supposed to be about film and filmmaking and film enthusiasts for film enthusiasts and people who perhaps want to get into film production and you're probably one of our first firsts for technical crew because you're our first cinematographer to turn up so um I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of picking your brain about a lot of things no but um the first thing i want to ask you about is um who or what was your first influence in film or to get into film God, that's a, that's a different, to be honest it wasn't really a person it was more of a, a subject mm. um, always been interested in film uh, manga in particular do you know what the, probably the biggest influence is my dad my dad was a bit of an oddball uh, okay introduced me to film he'd let me watch films I really wouldn't, shouldn't be allowed to watch was you watching manga or anime yeah, early he, on? Like, he introduced me to anime and yeah. all kinds of things uh, yeah, yeah. but really to be honest it was more of a, a subject a hobby okay uh, I was um, I used to be quite into motorcycling and diving and snowboarding and stuff like that and really just sort of filming those hobbies yeah. re uh, sort of reinvigorated my interest in photography and film okay. I did it in school did classic film photography did an art, art A level and what have you mm. uh, so it just kind of reinvigorated that and being sort of um, reintroduced to sort of the new tools of the day yeah. and where we are sort of thing really so yeah, I mean, film film as a whole, I mean, everyone loves, um, yeah, I, I love like all the classic directors and, and all the big films. I think, I think entertainment's probably the biggest sort of draw for me. I, I love going to the cinema for sort of like the big, yeah. the big blockbuster films. You know, I love independent cinema, but yeah. there's nothing like a big popcorn flick. Like a Back to the Future on Independence yeah, Day. Yeah, Ready Player One is a recent one. So for example, yeah. any, any Marvel film and everything, but um, as, as, you, as you sort of uh, get into it, uh, well, now, well, if I go, 
to, to now, sort of ten years later, yeah, um, then you start having a, a different sort of look at film. It's more like the, uh, yeah. the psychological impact of films. It really sort of gets me into it. Now. Sure, I, think I went way off your sort of question. No, no that's cool. <laughs> well, the thing is, I want to go back to the um, you mentioned the word manga, me throwing the word anime because I think um, the the standard definition of manga and anime is manga is the comic books and anime is obviously the the motion uh, um, animated stuff. Um, did you ever watch um, Akira at a young age? I did, yeah. And was this one of the films that your dad may have introduced you to? Uh, it was younger? actually, yeah. It was. Um, I, th- I think I was like twelve. Um, and it's, what- a, it's a pretty, it's you know, it's a pretty heavy film. Lots of uh, yeah, sort of, uh, in, you know political things going on. In that. Uh, can you what were your impressions as a twelve-year-old just being exposed to that type of film? Um, I mean, I suppose it's just you didn't know something like that was possible. Do you know what? It's probably my. It was probably my Blade Runner. If that okay. Sense. Yeah. You know, being young and you know, like Blade Runner was probably a bit too much. Yeah. Um, philosoph- philosophical. Uh, yeah. For me at twelve, but mm. Akira was probably my Blade Runner. Yeah. It's easier to grasp and use. Probably yeah. like had ideas popping up animation as well. That thing, you know, you start seeing the compositions are so specific. Mm. They're not found. They're they're storyboarded and created, and they're yeah. created over a long period of time. And yeah. Any image you get in, in anime is usually very, especially big budget anime, mm. is very deliberate. This is what we wanted to show you. And as a we've we've mentioned in like a Akira and Blade Runner, are there any like favourite films that you kind of grew up with? Favourite films. I think I think I don't know if I speak for for most people, but I think your favorite film is really something you go back to from a feeling perspective. Yeah, either just a, you know good feeling or uh, action or something like that. Really, um, yeah. Some of my favorite films are like films I wouldn't watch over yeah. and over and over again yeah. just because of their their subject matter. You know, um, uh, what's it? What's the thing called? Um, what's the Stephen King film in the? It. No, not it. The Shining. The Shining, yeah. Like, I yeah. love The Shining, but would I watch that, you know, every other month or... Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't really need my brain sort of, like, attacked yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, well, as a... Um, I mean, the thing is... You, For me, it's, sorry, it's, it's, it's popcorn cinema. It's popcorn top, cinema. Top Gun, you know, Days okay. of Thunder. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise movies. Yeah. Cheese <laughs> on toast, yeah. on com, you know, yeah. proper... Yeah, yeah, cheesy stuff like that. Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Love Sci-Fi. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's not really like one specific film that I'd sort of dig out of the collection. Okay. You know, it's really a sort of genre that I'd probably... You know, it's almost like comfort food, I suppose. In that, in that regard. You, you sound like one of these filmmakers who... They, you don't want to get pigeonholed with that kind of survey question of these are my top three films and yeah. I will swear by them. I think you sound like you're... There's a lot of different genres you like to explore... Rather than yeah, just pinning your hat to one I thing. appreciate, and yeah. you know, after after you've after you're up, once you're in the industry, you start looking at films in a different way. You know, I can watch a romantic comedy and understand why it's a good product from a studio perspective mm. of why because it's got maybe, Matthew McConaughey in it. Yeah, well, why, it's, why it's going to put bums on seats? Yeah. Why it's going to get my friends in the camera assistant world, gaffer world, mm. uh, costume design stuff? So why it's going to you know, keep them to be able to pay their rent. Sure, sure, you know, sure. It's the same with TV shows. You know, I don't have the same taste for everything that comes out. But yeah. You can respect it at that very level because this is an industry. So with all of these, like, roles that are available in the film industry, of like editors, costume design, uh, camera assistant, acting, what was the thing that kind of grabbed you by the collar and thrust you behind the lens of a camera and think, um, I've got to be a cinematographer? To be honest, it was I was more a photographer when I first started out. That's, that's kind of like what I specialised in college. 
Um, and when I sort of came back to it, it was really just, it was photographing life and, you know, and hobbies and whatever. Can you remember the first camera you used? God, dear. Uh, no, it was a, I think it was, it was an, it was an, no, I know, I know it was a Nikon. Okay. Um, uh, a Nikon F something, I can't remember. It's an old sure. film, film camera. But um, for, for my dad, for example, he's, that's yeah. his, like, that's his football side of things. It was Nikon or nothing, you know. Oh, right. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely a Nikon. I have to get that right. But um, yeah, I couldn't remember what, what make or model now. <laughs> okay. Um, well, one thing I want to kind of clear up as well, because we, I've mentioned the name cinematographer uh, a few times, is... Um, there's three different terms of phrase when we talk about people who work with cameras. One of them is camera operator. The second one is cinematographer. And the third one is director of photography. Mm. Is it possible that you could give us some insight into what those differences may be for our listeners? Um, yeah. Um, so to be blunt, there's, there's actually four. Yeah. Uh, the fourth one is filmmaker. Um, gotcha. Anyone who picks up a camera seems to say filmmaker, mm. whereas anyone who designs costumes, they seem to say costume designer. Mm. There seems to be a bit of pride there. Mm. Um, but really, to answer your question, um, uh, director of photography or DOP is a role on a film set. It's not something you, you are. It's something you do. Mm. Um, for example, National Film and Television School, they don't do a master's in DOP, mm. they're doing masters in cinematography. Mm. Um, so a director of photography is a role on set, and that role on set is usually fulfilled by a cinematographer. Mm. Um, when you start working your way back or left, shall we say, into, say, TV, um, you have camera operators. And camera okay. operators in TV, especially pre-recorded programmes, uh, panel shows, stuff like that, Mm. They have the, the 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 voice of God in their ear, which is the director and the producer, mm. uh, and they're essentially directed. Mm. So it's a very different sort of world. Whereas a cinematographer um, understands cinematic craft, mm. and that's why they could be a DOP on. Mm. Set. Uh, whereas a camera operator really is anyone who's technically proficient in operating that camera, mm. uh, be it a film camera or uh, a digital camera. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, a camera operator is literally that. It's the person who can operate the camera, but a cinematographer is the person who understands cinematic craft and language, mm. uh, and the DOP is just a role on set. Mm. So would it be closer to say the camera operator is potentially a gun for hire and your cinematographer is like your scalpel? Um, I suppose you could say that, but you wouldn't you wouldn't hire a camera operator, uh, any old camera operator, to mm. work on a narrative film. Mm. Um, in the same way that you wouldn't hire any old cinematographer who's made their crust as a narrative mm. cameraman to come into a pre-record or live studio environment and expect them to just sort of mm. get on with it. So, Anthony, um, lots of cinematographers have letters after their name, ASC, BSC. How do you actually get those? Uh, well, to get to get those uh, letters after your name, you need to be invited by uh, said club. Um, to to start it off, you need to join those clubs, uh, which are really handy. If you join, for example, the BSC club, it's about one hundred and fifty pounds, I think, something like that a year. You have to send them a letter. They look into you real quick, just to make sure you're not a bot, you know. Um, and then you get access to private screenings, Q&As with directors and cinematographers and what have you. But further down the line, um, you, need, you, need the, you need these institutions to recognise your work. And at some point, if you're lucky, well, if, you, if, you're, ta if you're skillful or talented or whatever the word is, uh, they will invite you to be an honorary member of that club. So then you'll become 
well, you won't become Roger Deakins, but you'll be Roger Deakins, BSC or ASC. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, or yeah. both. Or both. I mean, Roger Deakins is both. Um, but yeah, if you get invited by by that, then it's, it's, a, it's definitely a seal of approval. It's like PhD. Great. And if I can just squeeze in one more question. I understand you do some online tutorials. Is that correct? Um, I, yeah, I dabble a little bit uh, just with things that people struggle with. Look up tables, bit of colour correction, um, maybe the technical reasons of why something does this and does that. Uh, but really, I don't really touch on the stuff I should touch on, which is you know, blocking psychology and, and, and what have you for actually building your, your craft. Well, you're giving that, us a good insight into that kind of stuff today. But um, if someone wanted to see any of your tutorials, how would they go about finding them? Um, they could search for BAMP Film, which is B-A-M-P Film. Um, You'll you probably find me on YouTube, Vimeo or Instagram, and there'll probably be a link somewhere. But uh, yeah, there's no web page or nothing like that yet. I haven't, even though I get on YouTube the Wix.com advert all the time that tells me how easy it is to make your own website, I still haven't done it. So um, yeah, so We've just just, just Google. <laughs> Great, fantastic, thank you. Oh, one more question. Do you have an ambition to make a film that looks like Top Gun visually? Yeah, definitely. I would love to do that. Yeah, proper cheese on toast. Definitely. It's like Stranger Things, you know, like... Uh, you, we love you, that. You know, you know that that's, it's a really good piece of, of television, but you also know that the people involved are like proper fans of like the 80s or 70s. I don't know what it is, actually. Um, 84 or something. 84, as, yeah, so they're, they're fans of the 80s and they, they, they get that in there. Everyone loves nostalgia, right? So. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> Top Gun would be great. Top Gun 2 would be fantastic. Wow. They're making that. Yeah, yeah I know. Without yeah. you. Oh, without How has yeah. this happened? Well, maybe not without you. I mean, I don't well, know that the DOP's yeah. been confirmed. No, so. Nobody knows. I might be on set. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you can't tell us. No, at best, the closest I'll get to that film is an Odeon ticket. That's about it. Top Gun 3. I mean, Tom Cruise is still going to be alive when he's like 120. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know so, Tom know. Cruise, right? He's going to be 75 and still running and jumping off of a building. So it's all wet. There's still time. Actually, Claude Mirondel at the DOP uh, the there, Top Gun 2. Oh, that's fantastic. Claudio. Claudio Mirondel. Uh, yeah, he's a big... So he's a, he embraces digital big time. Um, so, yeah, he's another, he's another good guy, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what type of project would you hire a cinematographer for? Uh, that would be any, anything narrative or commercial, mm. um, yeah, anything that requires cinematic language. Mm. Um, and that doesn't have to be uh, you know, like um, too extreme. It just needs to be someone who understands. Yeah, I can't keep saying cinematic language. You can yeah. edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's essentially that. But to be honest, it, these days you don't usually find one without the other. Yeah. You know, you don't find people that only specialise in operating cameras but yeah. then don't know what to do with it. I'm guessing a cinematographer somebody's got a good understanding of a script and how it's going to be played out on screen. I well, suppose. yeah, I mean, they, they'll have an understanding of the... I mean, to say they have an understanding of the script, they'll, they'll probably understand the psychological uh, context of the moment. Yeah. Um, for example, coverage of someone stirring a cup of coffee is mm. the most boring thing to film at all. Mm. But in the context of knowing that after that you're going to pull out to a wide shot to reveal a man who's stirring coffee and he's just murdered his family. Yeah. That changes the way you, you do that. Sure. You know, uh, the way you cover that. I mean, mm. photography is all about one moment. Yeah. Cinematography is the context of what comes before and what comes after. Sure. So it's, it's a very different thing, really. Okay. Um, how many people 
would you expect in a cinematographer's team? Uh, well, really talking about the camera department. Yeah. Um, there's always the ideal uh, scenario and that, that never really happens. <laughs> but what would be um, the ideal scenario? Ideal scenario would be uh, you've got the director of photographer, um, potentially a cinematographer who's, who's the camera operator. Mm-hmm. Um, you might find that some DOPs who can't specialise in Steadicam uh, or, or they can't specialise in a particular type of camera movement, be mm. it a um, techno crane operator or something like that, yeah. you've got your operators as well. This is when we get to the action movies like James Bond, well, your John Wicks. Oh, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Um, techno cranes are used in lots of things. They're used for lots of reasons. Mm. They're used to replace um, a dolly when the dolly track would be revealed or... Um, yeah, lots of really simple moves are actually done on technical and they're actually cheap. Okay. They're, they're cheaper um, along the day to actually use. You know, you, you pump down a base station and then you've got a certain amount of movement, whereas track is laid for dolly. Um, when you say a techno crane, is that like the exoskeleton no, no, suit no, no. that it's, people it's wear? A, it's a crane that's got a, a pneumatic arm, a, okay. a hydraulic arm. So it's a crane that can extend in length. Okay. When it extends in length, weight comes out the back, basically, to sure. balance it. But yeah, so your ideal crew would be at the minimum... Is uh, you know yourself the cinematographer the DOP sorry um, a first AC second AC a loader a runner. Hmm. Um, what does a loader do? Well, loader is really for you know lo- uh, literally loading the film magazine in in the digital world. It's probably more to do with running the uh, the memory cards back and forth. Okay. Um, but yeah, first AC is someone who pulls focus. Is also the person who builds your camera, and at the very Higher end is someone who probably goes to the rental house and makes sure the things that you want rented are in the box and okay. coming to you. Second AC is the person who handles all of your um, slates uh, and also keeps a, a track of your, your media management and things like that. Sure. Um, is that where we talk about the DIT work that we see? So yeah, everything kind of, I mean, really, film is one big collaborative organism. Yeah. Everything is kind of connected. You, you can't have a DOP who doesn't know about DIT. Okay. And, and vice versa, you know, everything needs to sort of gel together. That's why the word filmmaker is very ambiguous. It's, it's, okay. it's, it's a little bit naive, really. Well, speaking of naivety, how can someone, I mean, maybe on lower production, lower budget productions or other films, how can somebody spot somebody who's not a cinematographer but they're still laying claim to that title? Um, I mean... Without being harsh, it's, it's it's a bit of a shame because the way the way the world is now is you can learn by yourself. There's a lot of there's peer reviewed books out there for you to mm. build a, a curriculum around. You mm. can learn some things online and everything. So I don't really want to sort of make up mm. a sort of checklist for how to spot that yeah. faker. But there is there are people out there who are kind of upgrading their title status, thinking I'm going to get more work if I use this title because it's more yeah, attractive I mean, it and I can really affects pull myself in band. Um, okay and. and so, so really, the only way of really spotting it is cinematography itself is mm. is your voice. It's, yeah. it's how you view the world. Mm. Um, the only place that you can... I mean, you can, and no one can be a better cinematographer than another in that mm. regard because that's, sure. that's your viewpoint. If you've got a, a harsh upbringing uh, and you make it into the industry, it's going to change the way you look at certain things. So if you've got a very privileged up, up, upbringing, it'll yeah. change the way you look at things. But the only real sort of measure of a cinematographer is their ability to execute craft mm. if they can't manage the line if they don't understand light theory um, things like that then mm. yeah they're probably not really helping, helping themselves really okay <clears throat> okay and um, uh, what is your opinion on um, shooting it now it's, uh, the question is uh, full HD or 4K but my question is is film or uh, uh, digital Film or digital? Yeah. What is my opinion on, on yeah. that? 
Um, um, it's really just it's, it's about it's about money on one side. On one side, it's about money. On the other side of things, as as as, your, as, uh, as DOP, what do you think about when you shooting a film? Um, if if you have a choice, as usually it's a, it's a producer. I'd probably go with digital. This is the Christopher Nolan question, isn't it? Almost. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a paradox because if you speak to someone like Christopher Nolan, they'll tell you that the only important thing is the script, the story. And then you say, I want to shoot some digital, and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> hey, hey, this is not cinema. Yeah. And I'm sorry, that's a bit, I think that's a bit naive, really. Mm. Uh, the actual tool that delivers the vision. Yeah, but you prefer the, um, uh, the digital one? Digital, uh, I think, is it's, it's helped... It's it's helped cinematographers move into a different realm. Mm. If you look at film film for uh, cinema film uh, well sh films that have been shot on film uh, over the years, it's been a compromise for quite a while. When it, when film photography was first introduced, the noise of the camera changed the way uh, way well it didn't change the way because sound came last, but because they wanted sound and picture together, it changed the way they blocked scenes. So all of a sudden you've got um, you've got two actors that will come into a room and you'll sit down at a table to have this heart-to-heart -heart conversation about daddy dying of cancer, uh, mainly because they've got to sit next to a pot plant that's got the microphone in it because the camera's so noisy. Mm. Uh, and as we've moved further and further down, you've got, like if you look at, say, Heat, for example, the opening of Heat is a helicopter chase through New York. Well, not a helicopter, it's a helicopter um, aerial shots in New York. Whereas you look at the opening of, say, Drive, is it Drive, isn't it? Drive. Ryan Gosling. Uh, and it's it's LA it's LA uh, yeah it's the car parked yeah. before he has to do yeah, a little car chase it's LA in all its glory you yeah. can really see it you can see you can see the, the streets you can see the cars you can see the buildings mm. uh, the whole texture's there whereas with film that's just not possible and like I said the way to look at that is look at Heat a, you know, a film that's loved by lots of people that's the film with Robert De Niro yeah. against Al Pacino directed by Michael May yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I just started with the um Robert De Niro face. Um, uh, no, I, I think... Uh, it's coming... Thing, the first... I, 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 I love that. It's coming a train. Yeah. And after Robert De Niro's thing... I'm talking the, like the credits, you know, like where yeah. the credits come up. It's, it's like an aerial shot of... New really? York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll have to go back to it. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you look at that, you see... Have we just got... Have we just stumped our fax machine? Um, Akash for the first time. No, just... This very famous is Michael Mann using that uh, train. As yeah, not not only one film. Do you know what? I'll be honest. I remember he as, and it might be halfway through the film as this the uh, the shadow of Robert De Niro looking out of the window, and oh, there's like is, a blue background. Is, you're right, but this is the story moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah. about like um, the need to appease the uh, the Guild Union in America, where mm. you have to be able to put your credits up first and say so and so's in this, yeah. so and so's in that, yeah. and they use some rough coverage of something mm. oh, just so yeah. they can get through that moment and not yeah. find two hundred thousand like George Lucas did, right? Oh, really? <laughs> How did that happen? Well, Lucas got fined two hundred thousand dollars because he wouldn't put up the names of his um, the names of his actors in his in his films at the beginning. You know, Star Wars. Are we talking Star Wars? Yeah. So that pre-roll where we're seeing that it just in, a, in a galaxy far, far, far away. away, boom, and then you're into the story, and at no point do you go, "Oh, that must be Han Solo. Uh, that must be Harrison Ford." You know. Okay. Um, yeah, he got fined, and he lost change for that. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He lost money for that. Um, That's crazy. Fined. Yeah, it's a really good story because it's, it's a very. I mean, that is the truth. I mean, I'm quite interested now because I heard that Harrison Ford got like two percent of the uh, profits of the film. Right. 
as part of his pay deal to be in Star Wars. So he's been making money every, ever since Star Wars has made a profit. So I'm surprised he would have been part of asking for that credit at the beginning. Oh, no, he wouldn't. It's not that he's part of it. Oh, it's the it, guild. It's, it's the guild. It's a requirement okay. Okay. Um, that, that yeah, requires that the names of your actors are, are, are up at the beginning. Pre-credits. Um, yeah. So like, you know, so with, with Heat, it's, it's that mm. moment. It's not the, I have oh, this is where the story is. So it's, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, the, yeah. it's the shot that you, you don't care about. Yeah. You know, it's, the incidental stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, it's nothing sort of thing. Um, mm. Whereas if you look at, say, Die Hard, um, again, I do, like I have mentioned, I like cheesy movies. Right? Yeah. No, Die Hard's pretty cool. That's a classic, man. Die Hard's the same thing. The helicopter aerial shots in that, you know, they, the amount of work they've had to do to light that building and and make it visible on film is mm. extraordinary. It's a massive, massive cost. Uh, whereas with digital, you probably, probably see it anyway. Mm. So for me, if I had a choice, it would still be digital. It, there'd have to be a, a very strong reason to go to film. Film projection is out. Um, film projection is no longer there. Even if you shoot on film, the likelihood of projecting on film is next to nothing. The likelihood of your film not being digitised to have special effects and format and colour grade being made uh, to then be outputted on film for 200 theatres to then see your film on film is minimal. So I don't really see the benefit of it anymore other than a slightly romanticised view of I'd like to shoot this on film even though it's going to go on Netflix and be watched on someone's Samsung No. Whatever. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> and um, uh, what do you think? Uh, who is or what is the cinematographer best friend or worst enemy on a film set? Uh, cinematographer's best friend on set is probably the gaffer, um, as well as as well as their, their first AC. Uh, first AC is literally there with you all the way throughout the film. They're the ones who go off to the rental house and make sure your rental kit is where it should be and, and what have you. Um, but your gaffer, you know, is, is the person you talk through the scenes with outside of the director and the producer and, and what have you. Um, that's where you get a chance to sort of make a mistake, you know. Or, you know, it, and it's one of those things. It's, um, it's you know, the gaffers are lighting more films than cinematographers are shooting. Uh, first ACs are work are pulling focus more often than a cinematographer. So they they're your specialists, and that's that's what you lean on. So your, your best friend on set is probably the gaffer. Your worst enemy, I don't think there really is one, really. I think, I think that's a naive thing, to be honest. People will say producers or, or they'll say first AD, but your first AD is there to make sure the film gets made. They're there to make sure that you mm. get through the film, actually produce, mm. produce the takes and, and what have you that day. So I don't think you really have... I think the biggest enemy on a film set can be you. And the best, yeah, your your best friend would probably be the gaffer and the first AC and the first AD who all keep you moving forward. Yeah. And uh, and what do you think? What uh, the um, the director? And how how important for you the the connection with the director? Oh, it's massively important. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. If you don't really have that, then you're going to struggle anyway. Um, you need to understand where they're coming from and why they're coming from there. Sometimes you'll have a director who's coming from a, t- a particular angle, maybe out of the naivety of what could be done instead of. So that's when you get a chance to, you know, to say to them, you don't need five five angles to cover this. You could do this in one moving shot and not lose anything from your story, you know. Um, but really, you need to be on the same page as your director. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to understand that you're the director's right-hand man. You're, you are definitely below him, uh, or her, sorry. Um, and Good save. 
<laughs> no, yes. <laughs> to be honest, if, if you look at my IMDb, the last few projects I've shot have all been directed by women and produced by women. And I have to say, if I'm going to pick a dog in this fight, yeah. I prefer working with women at that level. Why is that? Because we've had a previous interviewee discuss this matter. What is it about working with female directors that appeals to you? I've generally just found it, a, a, in, in, from, from my side as well, just a, a less ego-led moment you you get mm. to have a real conversation about what's right for this film mm. um and there's just a level of respect there but i mean that's i mean it's a bit ignorant to say i mean it's not mm. like i've worked with every female director mm. out there or every male director mm. out there i mean there's a really good friend of mine who's a, a male director and mm. working with him is effortless yeah right? it always is and it's a, it's, a, it's a genuine pleasure and at the other end there's a, a female director i work with and that's the same. She's always okay. on top of everything. Sure. You've, you know, she's always got the right an answer to whatever you need. Mm. Not an answer because she's just yeah. making it up on the spot. But sure. if, if there's something missing or you're not too sure, yeah. there's something to talk to talk about there, and you can have a genuine conversation about the film without stepping on someone's toes. Okay. And that's I think that's sometimes that's the, that's what I was saying. You, you were asking what the biggest enemy is on a film set. It can, it can be yourself. Yeah. If you're easily offended, if you're easily if you if you've got too big a toes and they're always yeah. getting trod on. You're not going to get far in this industry. It's, I, it's a collaborative medium and yeah. you have to be able to collaborate. I would have said that um, the biggest enemy on the film set could be time, but it seems like the issue can also be, um, like I say, ego, personality, yeah. people getting territorial control, for the wrong reasons. You know, I mean, like you can't control time, mm. um, but you can control what, what you've, how much, you know, what, what you do with the time that's available. Mm. Um, but yeah, things that you can actually control, you know. Yeah. I mean, the biggest enemy on the film set is money. Really? Yeah. Mm. If you've got more money, you've got more days. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> End of. <laughs> I'm pretty sure a feature film that's shot over a year that could have been done in 30 days with everyone stressing out and losing their hair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> will be an amazing feature film. It's just never going to happen. Yeah. That's a real shame. Yeah. Um, there was a, you did have, a, in regards to film and, or digital, there was a, convers- a thing here about full HD or 4K. Yeah. 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 Is, is there anything you want to explore? Well, um, I, I just want to jump back there because uh, I just want to have this as an insert because Anthony pointed in at his head about the correlation between hair on your head and stress <laughs> in on a film set. And I am somebody who has a great lack of hair and I feel like I've been stressed more than necessary in film sets. So I, I get the feeling that people who have got a full head of hair, uh, Dom, uh, just, not true. <laughs> just, <laughs> just really stress free. But um, today we will tell the full story of the stress you subjected me to okay we I do mean that was on a film shoot it wasn't in our personal lives those <laughs> moments where that's not a smile it's a grimace yeah, yeah. it is a fixed grimace yeah it's it a fixed a grimace very very long uh, uh, we call it Wallace Wallace, Wallace and Grimace <laughs> or, or what is it in Grimace Grimace and Vomit <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, okay, I want to say something about Full HD and 4K. Um, There's this new debate going on about um, we've got to shoot 4K, we've got to shoot 4K because it's available. But the reality is um, not many people are watching TV now in 4K because it's really 720p and there's like this Full HD stuff. And 720p is actually, I think, DVD and uh, 1080p is actually Blu-ray. So... The other issue I want to talk about cinematographers, I might as well bring it up now, is do cinematographers get sensitive with the idea of we're going to shoot in 4K and if we don't like the shot, we can punch in? Because that means 
the editor is now picking the shot on the frame and taking that choice or that expertise away from the original yeah. cinematographer because now they're saying it's a 4K shot, we can move anywhere we want on the screen. Mm. And the DP's thinking, well, I took that frame specifically because I think that's the best framing for the film. What's happening there? Well, it depends. It depends. The, the real, the main system that's really lead, leading high, um, high density f- digital formats mm. would be Red, okay. uh, and Red have uh, overscan features built into their cameras, mm. so that you can have a six K negative, mm. but you've actually composed the entire film at four K, mm. which is you know, I mean. 6K, I mean, we're up to 8K now, but um, 6K is already nine times the resolution of HD. Wow. Um, so um, people manipulating your composition in post later is a touchy, it's a, it's a touchy, touchy, subject. touchy subject. It really depends on what, what was filmed and what was mm. shot. If you're managing blocking of, say, three, four characters at a time, mm. even though you have a higher resolution, there's probably less that, that can be done anyway with yeah. that without it looking terrible, without mm. breaking compositional rules and, mm. you know, you know, chopping off people's headroom and stuff like that for no yeah. reason and, and what have you. So, I mean, you know, an, an, an ignorant approach to cropping is, yeah. not, not, uh, a, is not a fan of any cinematographer. Sure. Um, but a certain amount of, of flexibility is probably accepted. It's not like mm. we didn't used to do that with film. Film mm. was, film's always captured as a negative and then you have your duplicate negative, which is processed later. Mm. You know, we used to, you know, slightly over-project if we wanted to change the shot. It's all possible. Uh, so it's not like we haven't done that in the past. Um, but yeah, people manipulating your composition is not exactly... Uh, That's no, like no a... Really like that. Yeah. that could be a pet, pet peeve sort of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it sort of goes against everything you've just done. You've mm. been on set, you've, you've, you've really figured this out, you've thought about, again, cinematography is what becomes before, comes after, and during that moment. Mm. Um, you know, manipulating that shot. And really, you can only go bigger. You can mm. only make something more, you know, bigger, something. Mm. Um, and the bigger something is, the more important it is, and mm. that's changed the psychological impact of that film. Mm. So it's, you know, it's something that you can get, get you out of a bind, but... Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not a fan of it. And I found that younger cinematographers are actually less of a fan of it than older cinematographers. Oh, right. Some older cinematographers, and I mean people that have proved have proved their worth, you know, people that have shot like The English Patient and um, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road. And whatever. They, wow. they, they love it. You know, like they, okay. they love the idea that you could just punch in and get your medium shot. Yeah, yeah. They, they love it. But younger cinematographers are probably the ones that are saying, well, yeah. no, don't do that. You well, know. I'm guessing with a Mad Max Fury Road, that's about not wanting to go back into the desert with like sand in your face trying to get that. Yeah, perfect shot and stuff. I mean, like Max Fury Road is a fantastic thing to talk about. To be honest, uh, okay. But yeah. Um, one second, Sammy. Uh, what are your three tips, uh, top tips you can give our listeners about recording live events? Uh, three top tips to give. So, mm-hmm. as in live broadcast. Um, really, uh, to be honest, if, if you've got, you, you really don't, you can't go into that into that world with three top tips. If mm. to be to be at that point, you would have already done pre-record live TV shows where you you're going and and um, you're part of a, a TV show that is literally everything is being recorded now, and you have a vision mixer and a director that are editing the show on the fly. So that's already a pre-record show. If you've got that experience. You're literally just taking that into a live environment. At that point, that you don't have three top tips. You um, you literally listen to your line producer, listen to your director, and act like the robot that you are. And that's 
that's not a, that's not a negative. You are there to fulfil uh, a role, and your and your role is small compared to all the everything that's that's going on in there, sort of thing. So really, it's about leaving your ego at the door, uh, understanding that you're part of a much bigger collective, um, and yeah, trust your director, trust trust the voice of God in your ear. I mean, you've had this experience uh, quite recently working for like a very big broadcast channel called Russia's. Russia today. I will spit the words out. Um, so, um, well, RT UK they like to be called RT UK. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. So RT UK is a bureau of Russia Today. Um, a bit like Al Jazeera UK is a bureau mm. of Al Jazeera. BBC America is a bureau of yeah. BBC. And what what is it like working in this day and age with so-called Donald Trump's fake news for one of his key broadcasters, like the contacts, the clients, yeah. the non-disclosure agreements? What's that environment like for you as a cinematographer? Um, I mean, at that point, you're you're now camera operator. You now mm. you now have craft. You have mm. specific rules uh, to mm. follow. So, television coverage and composition is very. It's, it's designed for people that nod off. Mm. So there's a lot of central composition in TV. There's a lot of mm. reticles that are on, on the nose or on the chin. Mm. And then when, can, when people's faces turn to talk to mm. someone, it's still here. There's a little bit of breathing room being given to where the, the direction they're talking in. But mm. it's generally designed so that if you switch on your TV, you, you instantly just look, look straight down the middle and mm. you see things straight away. But... Um, I mean, the political side of it, I guess, is what you're you're asking. Yeah, um, I've seen I've seen um, some very ignorant people um, treat Russia Today uh, employees um, in a bad in a bad way, mm. um, using the ignorance of something like Donald Trump to sort of refuse an interview. Yeah, but to be honest, I mean, it's not a, it's not something I can really comment on. If I'm honest, sure, okay, Tom. Yeah. So um, coming back to the um, cinematography, um, we talked about punching in when we use 4K, but another thing that's really prevalent now is very excessive or flashy colour correction in right. post-production. What are your feelings about that? Um, well, colour correction is, is needed. Um, from a digital camera perspective, um, all of the digital cameras now record a format that you can't broadcast. None of them, not a single Sony, Panasonic, Canon format is designed for television. Uh, they're all technically their own digital negative. Um, so there's there's a colour correction that's required. But colour correction really is for mistakes. So there's a lot of uh, colour space transform going on at the moment where, because we've now, we've now got sort of three, do you know, we've got three delivery formats, but that's going to shrink to two. Uh, we've always had, for digital projection, we've had P3. For television, we've had Rec 709. In the last few years, we've got HDR. Uh, but I don't know if you've seen the news regarding film projection. They're actually, they've, they've been testing out huge televisions mm. and removing projectors as a whole. Uh, so what does this mean for like the average consumer sitting down at home in front of a flat screen HD TV? It's very little to the average consumer. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, very little to the average consumer. But for editors and cinematographers, mm. it means that our, our pipeline is shrinking, which is mm. better for us. Okay. Um, instead of having to worry about Rec 709, the, you know, the six, seven stop TV specification uh, and HDR and projection, the closer we get to a single delivery format, mm. uh, the better for us, really. Uh, mm. Film always had... 
uh, a single delivery format. You shot film mm. for it to be duplicated on film, to be projected on film mm. on the screen. So it's one format all the way through. Sure. Digital is always at the mess of different uh, TV specs, uh, different cameras, hertz, 50 hertz, different cameras, different ways of processing, etc., etc. But now what you're finding is the digital cameras, they capture far more than film mm. and our delivery formats are smaller. Mm. Um, so it's actually, the, the benefits of each camera is there, but they're, they're all way above their, their delivery formats. Sure. So you'll actually find in, in the, as we go, down as we as we go into the future really i think to be honest we probably could possibly end up with one spec which is hdr so whose job gets easier because of this is it the editors colorists, or the I'd say. colorists Color, well every it kind of it affects everyone going backwards i mean with with rec 709 rec 709 and hd for example hd is a, a far lower resolution uh, format um probably helps makeup artists more than anyone mm. uh, than anything um <clears throat> Uh, yeah, um, and then for cinematographers, it's the amount of dynamic range we get to play with on set and how we get to light something. Mm. Um, so if these formats become singular, then it's everyone's on the same page. Mm. So your cinematographer, your editor, colorist, and the, the manufacturers of TVs—they're mm. all on the same page. We're all just making one, mm. one thing for. And if that goes forward for cinema as well, mm. um, yeah, it, I think there'll be a consistent a consistency that filmmakers have been after for a long time and I'm, I'm talking like 1960s onwards wow. the uh, directors who hate projectors the projector wobble and projector mm. gate issues and you know mm. projector bulbs that have got you know a lower in one cinema compared to another we've mm. always been fighting for consistency which is where we are where we are does this also affect like the lighting of um individual actors with different complexions and stuff like that no, uh, it Not doesn't. So I mean, there's, if, if I could give one tip to any aspiring cinematographer, it would be to pick up a light meter and start mm. understanding light theory. Once mm. you do that, you realise that light is agnostic to skin tone. Mm. Um, you don't... I, 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 my big pet peeve of mine is when people ask, um, well, they ask for advice on exposure based on skin tone. And what mm. they're really saying is, where do you like your white people? Yeah. That's really what they're saying. Yeah. They're not asking for white, black, yellow, et cetera, et cetera. This mm. where do you like your white people? Okay. It's a very ignorant way of approaching it. Mm. Whereas a light meter is agnostic to what your skin tone is. It just measures the light. Mm. It's based on middle gray. It gives you a result and that's it. If you light, if you, mm. if you set up a light, if you set up a scene mm. and put any complexion of skin tone in front of that, it should be accurately represented to mm. life. And what's a good light meter to buy or purchase at the moment? Um, I, I have a Sekonic 858, which is probably the, the latest one, so touchscreen and what have you. Um, that's probably, the, well, for me, it's a bit biased, I guess, but yeah. that would probably be the best one. And where did you get that from? Uh, Amazon. Okay. Prime. Gotta love Prime. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Delivery next day. Yeah. Don't like it, send it back. Cool. <laughs> Use it and send it back. Other online services are available. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to ask as well is, um, and this is another ignorant question, what exactly... Are LUTs? LUTs. Uh, LUTs are lookup tables. Mm. Um, they're mathematical spreadsheet numbers that move uh, colours around in, in, in a colour space. Mm. So they move uh, red, white, and blue. Uh, sorry, red, green, and blue to different points. Mm. Um, yeah, that's essentially what they are. They they were generally they were used uh, in the beginning to help. Um, so we used to digitise film to a Cineon log curve, which would be very flat, and then we'd use a lookup table to move that Cineon log curve to somewhere else. 
So, Anthony, if I could pull you back to the um, the aesthetic question. Oh. Um, it's been noted right now, lots of blockbusters have this kind of teal and orange colour scheme. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a problem with that? Is that a bugbear of yours? I don't have a bugbear with it. I think people that have a bugbear with it are maybe a little bit naive to colour theory. Um, I even saw someone who was upset about the teal and orange look of Mad Max Fury Road. You have a blue sky. Mm-hmm. An hmm. orange desert. It's very hard to not have teal and orange at that moment in time. Uh, but it's it's generally something that just happens. It happens every day just by accident. But there are some really good films that, uh, to be honest, it's really good that it's there as kind of like a standard, which is one of those things that just happens anyway, like I said. Um, but then you get films that, that deliberately move away from it, things mm-hmm. like Oblivion or uh, Her, for example. So and, Oblivion with Tom Cruise yeah, and Her with Whacking Phoenix. Yeah, it's very white and creamy and, and uh, it's got some like really standout bluey moments that are really nice. And mm. you move to Her and it's like pastels and mm. it's beautiful. Uh, but you only get to really notice that because there is a kind of a normal standard sitting there. What about films like uh, Tree of Life, directed by Terence Malick, and uh, I think that was featuring uh, Brad Pitt and Sean Penn. Is that doing anything um, on screen at the moment? Tree of Life is one of those. I love that film. This is the Amanda Lubowski. It's amazing. It's just a beautiful film. And I think the, the whole context of that film sort of, it just, it's not something that goes, well, you know, we have this completely out there film, so what standard approaches can we use? It's like, well, yeah. we can't use any standard approaches. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, that's a fantastic film. Um, one, of, one of the best examples of cinemat- cinematic language there, actually, where you watch, um, spoiler alert, but you watch the news of the, news of the son's passing mm. given to each parent. Yeah. Brad Pitt, the hard ass dad. Yeah. Um, the camera's up above him, looking down on him. He's on mm. the phone, don't see his face. Yeah. And he mutters a line, which is something like, I was always so hard on him. Yeah. Cut to the mum, and it's low angle. She just, and she just cries to the camera, falls on the floor, collapses. Uh. It's two really simple shots. Yeah. But the context of what comes before, what comes yeah. after, is, sure. is embodied in that film. Um, I mean, just saying that, I mean, uh, what was the name of the uh, DOP on that again, please? Lubowski. Okay, so what, what I want to say was, for you, Anthony, uh, which filmmaker or cinematographer do you think is pushing the boundaries of what's possible on a camera in the cinema? I think one of the best cinematographers is David Mullen. Um, David Mullen did... Like he did a film called the the was it the astronaut farmer with Billy Bob Thornton. Um, then there was another film he did. Ah, I can't remember what it was called. I didn't actually looked it up. Uh, the smell of success. Uh, but it's not so much what they do with cameras; it's what they do with lighting um, and false perspective, miniatures, things like that. Sort of understanding understanding optics, understanding perspective, understanding the craft of our, our industry and then doing their best with it. Uh, well, uh, taking it to a new level sort of thing, you know, like using small houses in the foreground to make it look like it's a big house in the, dist- in the distance. So are you a fan of old school techniques like that? Yeah, old school techniques like that are amazing. I mean, um, especially when it's done in camera. Um, so are, you, are we saying David Mullen spell... M U double L E N. Because at the moment he seems to be famous for The Love Witch, Jennifer's Body, and Twin Falls, Idaho, and Seven yeah, Days in Utopia. I mean, like if you just go through, I mean, like he did a, an, an episode of Westworld, uh, he did okay. an episode of Yeah, he X-Dan, did actually. Mad Men. 
The Good Wife, you know, like huge big budget TV shows. Shadow Boxer. Uh, yeah, and he's just yeah, he's just a he's a very he's a great cinematographer. Uh, understands uh, the whole voodoo of camera filters. Um, understands perspective and, and playing with things like that sort of thing. So because I, I think that you know the camera's just a tool. There's not really much you can do with it. I think like if you really want to talk about what filmmaker, mm. uh, it'd be Christopher Nolan who keeps pushing IMAX. Okay. Uh, you know, constantly just large formats to just get a different look. Uh, to the point where they've got an IMAX camera on a Steadicam sled, mm. you know, uh, or being used as a GoPro with Interstellar. Mm. But it also changes that I think it might change. It's interesting. It might change the way he's made films. Interstellar mm. put um, people in astronaut sort and astronaut suits, and all of a sudden he can do sound takes with the IMAX camera because the audio is encased inside the. Oh right. Yeah, and then that, well, that kind of makes sense, isn't it? Because the astronaut yeah. suit is built for listening to audio in that way, anyway, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So, and, and but if you look at the silence of Dunkirk, mm. you know, and Dunkirk is mainly shot in IMAX. Yeah. Um, I don't know if and I think that's it's kind of interesting that his preference because he's got a very big preference for film and for IMAX mm. has kind of changed the way not changed the way well yeah it's, it's evolved the way that he's he's written he's written films. Yeah. And if you look at. Um, What's the one with DiCaprio? Um, uh, Inception. Inception, you know. Yeah, the one where he plays like the alternate universe Christopher Nolan because it's basically yeah. DiCaprio looks like Christopher Nolan's hair younger <laughs> in a suit, doesn't it? He's got the jacket, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, if you look at Inception with, uh, with the amount of dialogue that's in there and what have you, it's... Mm. It's like a different fit. It's a different beast to Dunkirk. Sure. You know? Yeah, it's a different cinematographer. Mm. Yeah, it's a different cinematographer but it's the, it's the same... But actually, Interceptions won a best best you know best um, Oscar and um, best yeah. synopsis for Wally Fister. Yeah, Wally Fister. Yeah, Wally Fister did um, the Dark Knight as well, I think. Yeah, he did all of the yeah. uh, Batman films. Yeah, well, yeah, he, changed, uh, he, he did. Yeah. All, he did a lot of Nolan's films. Up he, he did. He did almost all just the last two. Yeah. His Hotel. He was migrated to being a director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he changed it. He, he tried. He tried to do the directing. It's a shame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because he's, he's very, very good. He was a very good cinematographer. Oh, yeah, he's amazing. And, but, and also, like, when you look at his history, he came up through B-movies, uh, B you know, horror films and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they, uh, they, they met in a, they met in a um, comic book festival or somewhere, yeah, yeah. and they started talking, and, okay, I'm going to do yeah. the memento, why... why? I think, okay, I, think, I think that shows like the lack of arrogance of someone like Nolan, which contracts, uh, contrasts a little bit with his arrogance with film. He will not touch digital, um, but can sort of meet a cinematographer of B-movies, have a genuine conversation, and then uh, build his entire career out of that, uh, that relationship. Yeah, I think... It's interesting. I think that it seems like... I'm going to try and pronounce this name right. The cinematographer for Dunkirk was Hoyter van Hoytema. Oh, yeah. Hoyter yeah. van Hoytemann, yeah. 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 He's, he's very good. He's, he's Swedish. Revenant as well, didn't he? Do the Revenant? Yeah. Yeah, I think... The, um, yeah, he did. Uh, Hoyte, Hoyte he was then, uh, is Interstellar, Dunkirk, Let the Right One In, the 2008 version, and her. Yeah. So yeah. these are very familiar, impressive films. They're, they're ones that you have to watch at the cinema rather than wait till they come out. And the thing is, is that you won't DVD. find a, a single person is the reason why those films are so great. It's, sure. it's, it's just a, f a fantastic collaboration. And the relationships they've built. I mean, yeah, the director is, is so important and the producer is also really important. They lead... They lead where the film's going. Mm. But you need the right people that are involved, really. 
I mean, to be honest, the only times you can really mention the word filmmaker would probably be Ridley Scott, yeah. Tarantino, Nolan. Like the auteurs, so to speak. Well, like, I mean, like Tarantino will get to, he, he, well, up until recently, he got to a point where he wouldn't even let a film be scored. He's like, yeah. no, no, that's right. I've got a good CD for this, don't worry. Yeah. You know, I've got this covered. Yeah. You know, he's, and his films are, are built around music, art, yeah. and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very much him to the point where he'll be in the film yeah you know um, and he'll act in the film and that's, that really covers a lot of bases mm. still doesn't make him the be or an end of the movie mm. but definitely more so than say mm. the last person who directed one of their bombs or something sure and um, talking about building films are there any uh, projects of interest to you at the moment or things that you're working on at the moment that we should know about um, I just did I just shot a, um, a really interesting um, a five minute short film I guess that's like a, a vignette almost or okay. just outside of a vignette um, but yeah had top top level talent involved the director is a, a series regular on called the midwife um, our lead actor had a huge story role in Holby City oh wow um, and our second uh, lead actress um, had a prominent part in Kingsman Mm. So, you know, proper talent who've worked with, you know, good people coming on board. But it was an interesting short film because it was it was a, a lie. It's a, mm. essentially a, a film that has a red herring um, story that the audience need to be invested in, mm. uh, even though that really we were pulling a twist on them at the end. Um, that's, that was a sort of interesting thing to approach um, uh, visually because mm. you're, you're trying to always uh, empower, not empower is the wrong word, but reinforce the red herring, which is mm. not the story. Sure. Because you need the audience in a particular place for mm. when you switch gears near the end. Um, Have you got a log line for this story or a title that you can tell us at oh, the moment? Oh, it's called Hunting, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Hunting, yeah. Uh, directed by Jack, uh, Jack Hawkins. Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Hunting, yeah. Coming to a festival near you. So is this something that is finished production at the moment? Yeah, uh, uh, photography is finished. We have literally a colour grading session on Tuesday with Wash Studios okay. down in uh, Hackney. Great place to go. Fantastic guy there. Um, yeah, and once we're, we're done there, it won't be long, really. We've got, um, I think it's already into sound mix. I mean, speaking about, we've talked about cinematography and cameras. I suppose the natural question would be to ask is, what camera and what lenses did you use for that short film? Oh, so that was shot on uh, Red Dragon uh, in 6K. Okay. Uh, 6K4. Um, of course, all the reds are raw. Um, Lenses-wise, so it's, again, it's a short film, slow budget. So, um, I direct, you know, I've, I've got a responsibility to the film as much as myself, you know. Um, you can pull in favours and you can spend part of the budget on lenses, but it was just not it was just not worth it in the long run. It was better to have that money available for longer longer time at the at the set and you know more costumes and stuff. So the lenses we used were um, Sigma Art Primes. Okay. Um, yeah, from in an EF uh, electronic mount. Yeah, because the thing is, not a lot of people know this, but like when you obviously go up a gear, when you get the higher res cameras. Like lens packages and camera packages, they're just not the same thing. They're two no. different things you have to hire, aren't they? I mean, they are, they are, and they're not. Um, to be honest, it's it's just about robustness. That's yeah. what I mean, you're talking about cameras that are going to be used on Lord of the Rings, mm. and they're going to be chucked on a Libra head on the back of a Russian arm on a car, towed through mud and grime and this, that, and the other. Mm. 
you can't be putting something on there that you bought in Argos. Sure. It just won't, it won't last. Mm. Um, but really, it's also it's the mechanics uh, be uh, working for the people that use them. So sure. Uh, first ACs who want to who need to be able to pull focus on these lenses. They need uh, consistent focus marks. We need we need mm. past, uh, we need a consistent T-stop aperture for us to do for, for us to change lenses mm. um, and not affect our lighting. We can light something change the field of view via our lenses without affecting exposure or colour rendition and things like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all something that's really, it's, it's all something that's very sort of film photography led, you know, where mm. you, were, you lived in a colour-baked medium where what you shot is what you got and there's only mm. a certain amount of stuff that you could move. Mm. In today's raw world, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit moot really. You, get, you do get character from lenses and stuff like that, mm. the, the colour of it. Mm. It's it's going to go through so many different processes before it comes out mm. the other end. That the little orange till, the mm. little orange look you got you get from the lens is mm. sometimes uh, not worth it. As long as it, it really you you want to make sure that it serves the purpose of the film. Mm. Does it resolve enough detail? Um, are the abstract are the artifacts annoying or um, like as they you know, get your attention or not? Mm. And um, have you worked on anything else that's kind of uh, more fan made or even kind of geek um, orientated something that works with geek sweat yeah something that works with geek sweat uh, yeah um, so I'm actually working with a, a director who's who's got quite an ambitious Star Wars fan film project okay um, you know he said Star Wars I didn't read the script I just went yep <laughs> you know I get to have Darth Vader in my showreel that's, that's, that's all that matters nice uh, no I'm joking is there a copyright with that because I'm, I'm sure you're not allowed to use certain costume it's, designs because of Lucasfilms well like Lucasfilm they actually have this weird thing well not weird thing but they have this so, say, you're a, say you're a guy who wants to be Darth Vader sure um, like, like as you do yeah um, you can sort of appeal or approach them and have and be sort of officially rec- recognised as, as one of the official Darth Vader's oh. Oh, right. So then you can go to publicity events and things like you can go to a hospital and, you know, is, like... Is it like Santa Claus where you've got to go to a school for training and then you can learn the walk or start on the talk <laughs> and do it? I don't know if, if that's the case, but yeah. basically once you get sort of um, confirmed, um, you yeah. can get an official Lucasfilm... Certificate? Uh, no, I guess <laughs> to put... Yeah, like a little... Yeah. No, um, no, you get an official... Uh, um, costume okay um, so one of one from the original press as opposed to let me just make up a crappy one and like the labels or the badges yeah, are going to fall exactly. off halfway like, through like one you buy for Halloween you know? yeah um, so yeah so we got one of those guys involved as, as our Darth Vader um, there's a fair chunk of money that's been thrown into it from his own investment and wow. we're hoping to kickstart the campaign sometime in September oh so you're really going to go for crowdfunding oh yeah yeah but so specifically through Kickstarter yeah yeah we've got the budget um, um, already in place for the teaser trailer for all of the you know, the costumes and, and everything that's leading up to it uh, studio time special effects etc etc so visual effects well before you go on do you remember the name of the Kickstarter page Oh, it's not on Kickstarter yet. So oh. I'm, I'm, we're, in, we're, in, we're in production now, really, pre-production now for the film, but also the campaign that, is, that we're going to use. To- Do you know what? You should send us the hashtags and the web links yeah, yeah, for when this uh, episode comes out. Uh, Wrath of the Empire. It's on Instagram. Okay. Um, yeah, they've, they've, they've kicked off. I mean, we had a, a little promotional video released the other week. Yeah. I think it got 10,000 views in a few days. Wow. Uh, but I mean, that, these days, I don't know if that's short change or yeah. big deal. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, 10,000 views, I think anyway. I mean, we've 
we've probably got 10 people who viewed our twi- Twitter page at the moment, so we can take some of those views if, off if you don't need them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So feel free to share and link and what have you. And, uh, it'd be interesting to talk about the projects maybe on another, another episode. Uh, what are your expectations for this uh, particular project? Like, Where would you like it to go? Well, I'd like to see the, the money get raised. Um, the, the director, is, he knows what he's dealing with. He knows what the... I mean, we've budgeted the film at somewhere around 80K. Um, wow. And... Eight zero or one eight? Eight zero. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it could potentially go up, but, Mm. um, you know, just being realistic with what we're trying to achieve uh, in camera, we're trying to uh, not avoid special effects, uh, visual effects, um, but we're trying to do as much in camera as possible. So using rear projection mapping for backgrounds and stuff like that outside of the outside of the uh, the bridge of the Star Destroyer and the Sentinel. We're having proper sets built. yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, I wish you the best of luck on that. Thank you. Um, I think we may have rounded up all of the questions there. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, that was quite a full, expansive um, introduction to the world of cinematography. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the time that you gave us. I hope we can get you back on board to probably even... Um, divulge your interest in Mad Max uh, Fury Road and uh, obviously we want you to wish you the best of the upcoming short film production Hunting and uh, the future film production for Wrath of Uh, Wrath of the Empire Empire. okay so um, from me uh, I'd say like thank you very much Anthony for taking part So on behalf of Geek Sweat, uh, that's a major round of applause. So we can shoo away that large crowd of young girls away from the building now that Anthony's about to leave by the fire exit, Beatles style. They're all 30 plus. (laughs) Um, What we're going to do now is uh, just uh, remind you uh, that Geek Sweat is available now on castbox.com. FM, uh, Stitcher, and uh, with Apple's kind approval, iTunes. Uh, you can find us through the hashtag Geek Sweat. That's hashtag G W E K S W E A T. We also use the hashtag Trailer Trash Talk and Hot Topic and Inspiration Interview Inspiration Interviews. Um, and we would like to thank uh, the uh, our guest Anthony Brown. As we've already done. Um, we would like to thank the advantageous Akosh Both. Bye, guys. We also like to thank our other co host, uh, the disadvantaged Dom. <laughs> this- <laughs> oh, you're getting me back. <laughs> yeah. For uh, all those intros. Bye, guys. And um, I would like to thank the uh, malleable Malachi, MKH Inc. Bye-bye. And uh, you've been listening to your host, uh, the terrible, terrible uh, Trevor Jones. Uh, If you would like to know more about Instigate Projects, you can follow us on at Geek Sweat Audios for the time being on Twitter or Geek Sweat on Facebook or Geek Sweat on YouTube. Or you can find out about all of the other general projects via www.instigateonline.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you find us again soon on your podcast channel. We listen to films. We watch films so you don't have... Ah, I messed up. That was terrible. That was terrible, yeah. We watch films to save you hassle. Thank you. Over and out. (laughs) 